Good evening. Well, in Ukraine, Russian forces continue to make progress, steady progress, albeit whilst taking pretty considerable casualties. Peace talks once again have been held on the Belarus border. They haven't yielded much, but a tentative agreement that there should be some corridors opened for civilians to leave and for emergency aid and medicine to get in with the possibility of a ceasefire around those corridors. Not that significant, perhaps just mildly optimistic, but no more. But what really interested me today was President Macron. Yes, Emmanuel Macron, who held a long conversation once again with Vladimir Putin. Uh, no doubt he's trying to sort of position himself as being the great peacemaker ahead of the French presidential elections, which come in a couple of months' time. And his spokesman after the talk said that this is going to get worse. There is worse to come. That was worrying. But another statement was issued in which Macron said, we can no longer depend on others to defend us, be it on land, at sea, under the sea, in the air, in space, or in cyberspace. To this end, our European defence must step up. Now, the French have, for a long time, been pretty chippy about NATO. Indeed, they left NATO in 1966. Famously, the American president went to Paris, met with President de Gaulle, and he was told, the American president, he was told that the French wanted not just to leave NATO, but they wanted all American troops off French soil. That was the demand from President de Gaulle as they left. And in response, the American president said, does that include the dead ones? Reference, of course, to the massive cost, the huge cost that America had made to defend France in two world wars. So they left NATO. They became then a political member of NATO. They once again then became a full member of NATO. But what Macron, what Macron's saying here is that NATO's gone. This narrative I heard every single day in the European Parliament ever since the election of Donald Trump. The false narrative that Trump wanted America to leave NATO. But what it's all about are the federalist aims of the European Union, and there is no greater cheerleader for it than Emmanuel Macron. They want their own European Defence Union. They want, effectively, their own EU army. Now, there are some that are arguing that what's happened in Ukraine in the last week or so shows the need for that. I would suggest that provided that NATO is fit and strong and America is still a part of it, provided those things are in place, well then I can't see the need to set up a parallel command structure uh, which would be confusing for member states as effectively no man can serve two masters. Now, Joe Biden may not have been particularly impressive in his State of the Union speech, but he did say this about NATO. The United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. Well, that seems fairly clear to me. Every single inch of NATO territory will be defended. So why are the French doing this other than their political ambitions for the European Union project? Well, joining me now to discuss this is General Rob Spaulding, former senior director 
at the National Security Strategy Council. And you were the author, I believe, in, 19, in 2017 of a very important document all around national security. General Spaulding, welcome to GB News. Thank you. Great to be here. So the French, once again, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but a French president casting doubts on whether America is still committed to the NATO project. And I suspect this latest scepticism comes in the wake of what happened in Afghanistan last year. Because let's be frank about it. You know, it was a NATO mission. It went on for 20 years. And the Americans withdrew unilaterally without consulting their allies. So I guess in one way, Macron does have a point, doesn't he? Well, I think, you know, we can certainly look to that as not the best way that the United States should have dealt with the ending of the Afghanistan war. But I think we have more important things to deal with, and that is, are we going to be unified in the face of growing authoritarianism, or are we going to be divided? So there's a lot of ways that we can be divided. We can be divided in, in defense of, of Europe. Uh, between the EU and between NATO. We can be divided between the United States and between NATO. And we can be divided between national security and economic benefit. And I think all of those are ways that both the Russians and Chinese are choosing to separate us in the time when we need to be coming together. So I think NATO is more important than ever, but insufficient. In other words, we need to work together economically, in trade, financially. I've lost, I've lost a bit of volume there, which is a great shame. Uh, General Spaulding, the point that he was making is actually, he made the point that NATO, he just said, is more important than ever. And, you know, this is a former senior director of the National Security Council of the United States of America. And both parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats, are absolutely firm and absolutely clear that they are part of NATO, they will defend NATO territory. And yes, we were all pretty upset by their behaviour last year. Maybe, just maybe, Joe Biden and this administration have learnt something of a lesson from that. I don't know. I hope they have. I believe they have. Let's get back with General Sporting. I lost you there for a moment, sir. I'm sorry. You were making the point that in many ways NATO is more important now than ever. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to have NATO headquartered in Brussels and a European Union defence union quartered in Brussels? Well, I think when it comes to military command and control and strategy, having a divided leadership and divided forces um, has never worked. And in fact, that's why we went through in the United States something called the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which sought to unify forces under one commander. So, no, I don't think you could have a fra fractured command in terms of military. But as I was saying, it's not just military. Economically, trade, financially, academically, politically, we need to be unified as a free world together opposing the Russians and Chinese and authoritarianism that's rising and spreading everywhere. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, there seems to be no sign, uh, certainly with us, in terms of the Biden administration of putting a trade deal together. So you would argue that actually trade, security, defence, all these things should work hand in glove. 
Absolutely. If you're going to say that uh, Putin is a problem, then buying Russian gas is a big problem. And then not sanctioning the Chinese when they are providing the relief valve for Russian gas is an even bigger problem. You know, we have been spent 30 years tying ourselves economically, particularly to China. China's supporting Russia. They're trying to play like they're not, but they actually are. They're buying their gas. They're giving them the relief valve that they need when Nord Stream 2, for example, shut off. Yeah, no, absolutely. And let me let me ask you one more question. Slightly different sphere, uh, but a similar theme and a very hard question. But it's been noticeable just how loud the Chinese noise has become around Taiwan. You know, quite repeatedly, state television saying Taiwan is a part of China, period. What do we do? What, what does America, I mean, you know, America's made some guarantees, but what do we do as a Western world if China tries to move on Taiwan? Most Americans aren't aware that it was actually a Brit, Prime Minister Churchill, that came to America and said, we've got a problem. He gave the Iron Curtain speech, not in Europe. He gave it in St. Louis. Yep. And so what we need to recognize is we're in Cold War number two, and this is going to be a long, long drawn out struggle. I don't think we're going to be able to stop the Chinese from invading Taiwan, just like we weren't able to stop Putin from invading Ukraine. In fact, I think that's the pact between the two. In other words, China's going to look the other way while they move into Ukraine, just don't do it during the Olympics. And then they're going to go into Taiwan and Russia's going to support that. So that's the world we have to face. It's just like Berlin, you know, in 1948. We're going to have to think about how do we rescue people that need to be rescued? How do we resupply? Just like we're doing with Ukraine now. But ultimately, it's going to be a long-term struggle between the forces of good against the forces of evil. General Spalding, thank you very much for joining us and giving us those words. And there we are. There was General Spalding saying what I've been saying for a very, very long time. If they go on full steam ahead and create the European Defence Union, it will directly conflict with NATO. And yet it seems there are some within the European Union quite happy to say goodbye to America, who in their own Walter Mitty way think somehow the European Union can provide the right level of defence. I don't believe that it can. Well, I'm joined now by somebody who's becoming, well, pretty much a regular, I guess, on this programme, is Adam Holloway, Conservative Member of Parliament for Gravesham. Um, and, of course, you've just got back from your trip to Poland and into Ukraine. And, and thank you for broadcasting into us earlier this week. It was, it was, uh, it was great stuff. Um, you're not in too much trouble in Westminster, I hope. Truly, I don't think I'm in trouble at all. I think it was a typical, what I think your viewers would call mainstream media, sort of non-story. Someone asked at a press conference whether or not a, an MP should travel, and someone said they shouldn't break the travel advice. As I've said, I quite agree with that. You know, we shouldn't break the travel advice, but I think sometimes it is necessary. Yeah, well, it was the Daily Mirror. One. And it's advice as well. Yeah, it was, daily, it was the Daily Mirror who sort of... Well, most of them, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but you're here. So, Adam, let's start with... You know, we saw some of your testimony on the ground, which was powerful, about people volunteering, genuinely wanting to fight. Um, was your impression, as, you know, 40-mile columns were approaching Kiev and everything, was it your impression that the will of the people was holding? So I was talking to a three-star general, and he said, um, 
that the Russians' behavior had done something that he didn't think would ever be possible, and that was it, it united the Ukrainians. And definitely that's what I felt. You know, I stress I was not in Kiev. I was, sure. I was in the big Western city. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the will is absolutely there. Whether the means are is different. I mean, the, the reality is, and people can't see, but there's a, a map on Nigel's desk with all the various little front yeah. areas that the Russians are moving. So this is a massive, massive operation by a very, very significant military power against the Ukrainians who are doing amazingly. You know, we, they've been modernizing their army, obviously, for a while. They've got modern, capable armed forces. They, they're receiving a lot of help from other countries. I think, you know, a, a couple of dozen almost are, do, are doing this. Yeah. But, you know, they are fighting against the Russians. And that's a big deal. By all accounts, the anti-tank weapon, the new anti-tank weapon that we've developed in conjunction with some Swedish technology, that appears to be very effective. It's very effective, but the critical point is it's also you know, very easy to use because there are, there are loads of weapon systems out there. But the one thing the Ukrainians can't do now is suddenly get weapons that they haven't been trained on. Because, of course, at the moment, they can't take people out of the fighting to learn how to use complicated new systems. They can only use either things that are new ones that are very simple or ones that they're familiar with. So one of the things being talked up at the moment is the need for aircraft. And there's talk about um, uh, countries uh, that still use uh, Soviet-era equipment uh, that the Ukrainians yes. obviously know how to use, and that those actually being lent to Ukraine now to be flown by Ukrainian pilots. Because, again, nobody sane is saying that the West, the NATO, should actually get involved in the fight. You know, the Ukrainians could do that themselves, but we've got to give them the kit to do yeah. it. Although if you're Romania or Bulgaria and you've got a couple, of, a couple of dozen jets, you might think, actually, given what's going on, we might want to keep them here. As ever, you're spot on. I mean, look, that, that's a very, very good point. So what has to happen if, say, Romania gives yeah. up its, you know, however many MiGs it's got, yeah. then we have to have some air defence guarantee for them. So we should bring in a modern air defence system. And NATO could do that. And NATO could do that. But, but as I said to you, I think, uh, was it last night, the night before last, um, what they're screaming for is air defence systems. And indeed, I mean, in this notebook, you know, I've actually I've got their shopping list of equipment. What's really striking is they actually know where the air defence systems that they want are. For example, they want to load from Finland. Finland recently upgraded its system uh, and its old system, which is called the book system. They've actually got them in warehouses. The Ukrainians desperately want those because they've got book already and they know how to use them. Well, as you say, they are getting help. They're going to need an awful lot more, uh, by the looks of it. Very tough fight on their hands. Uh, some thoughts on the Emmanuel Macron comments, and you saw uh, what our American general had to say in response. What is it with the French? You know, I, I, you, you, when you mentioned this before the programme, yeah. I just thought the sheer ingratitude. I mean, look at the way America's basically underwritten European defence since the Second for se World War. Well, for 70 yeah, and now is yeah. not the time to raise your kind of, you know, Supra uh, national politics, you know, when actually we are, you know, we have a major war in Europe. Yeah. This is really not the time to be doing it. And to say that the Americans aren't doing anything, I mean, I'm sure the, the, the Russians can see from their satellites and their spies. I mean, I was down in southeastern Poland at an airport last night, and those were American planes I saw, American transport planes. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is the height of ingratitude.
Yeah. So, President Macron, please have a good cold, hard look at the reality. Yeah, or some satellite photographs, some Southeast yeah. Polish airports. Yeah. Well, he's busy fighting an election campaign. Adam, serious point. Uh, this refugee, huge train of people, uh, remarkable the way that countries like Poland are dealing with this and families are taking women and children in and, you know, it hasn't led to huge refugee camps. I mean, it's very, very impressive what the Poles are doing. A million have crossed that border so far. Some experts think it could be as many as four million by the time this is all over. I mean, goodness knows. They're vast, vast numbers. What should we do? You, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, was, I spent like five hours killing time in a little town in southeast Poland yesterday before going to get a flight. And there were two demonstrations uh, in support of the, the refugees. And you'd see people wheeling bags being taken into hotels by the Poles. I mean, the Poles have been extraordinary. And then when, when you're at the border, you see thousands of women and children. I mean, it's really a remarkable sight. But of course, the men between 18 and 60 are being kept, um, potentially to fight. So these are not the relatively rich economic migrants who call themselves refugees, who cross over from Calais completely uncontrolled. I mean, I, I lived once undercover in the old Sangat camp in Calais. And um, honestly, then, and I believe now, 99% of these people who are doing exactly what I do, I'd do the same if I was from a poorer country, but they are economic migrants, not refugees. Whereas these people really are refugees. And I think that we can afford to be really very generous with the Ukrainians because this is not of their doing and their menfolk are fighting this war on our behalf because we cannot get involved. So I have no issue with potentially, you know, many, many, many tens of thousands coming here because they'll return. They, they've got, yeah. That's where their families are. And we have to have a different category of asylum that doesn't mean that you stay here forever. So but, you know, it will be a, a year, two years, wh whatever, whatever it, it is. But, you know... We, we must do this. Adam Holloway, thank you for becoming a regular on this show this week. It's been can, terrific. Can I make two more points, if go I may, on, Nigel? Go on. One, it strikes me that part of this problem has been caused by uh, the environmental lobby and our opposition to fracking, for example. Britain should start fracking immediately. OK. Um, and my next point, since this is the first time I've seen you since Brexit, I'm genuinely embarrassed that you haven't been recognised and given oh. a peerage or something for your remarkable well, service very, to our country. Very sweet of you. Thank you, Adam. And I will be talking later on in this programme about a Conservative politician who's been knighted today, and it is truly extraordinary. In a moment, we'll talk about that very subject of gas dependency, how we're going to get back to producing our own gas, and some good news for UK financial services. So once again, Macron argues for a European defence union, a European army. I'm asking you whether that's a good idea. Tony says the reason the EU likes the idea of its own army is that it's cheaper and they would control it. Well, that's what they want to do, but could they actually do it properly? Another viewer says the EU needs to become a member of NATO. Most EU member states are in NATO, so what's the point of a separate command structure? How would it work? They would be in conflict. It's mad. No, I get. The world doesn't need more large, centrally controlled armies. NATO works because it's based on national cooperation, which puts a brake on authoritarian misuse. Absolutely. 
Anthea says, we've got NATO. It doesn't require a separate EU army. And David says, we in the UK don't have one of our own. Our intelligence is far superior as well. So if the EU want an army, go ahead. But they've had enough of British taxpayers' money, I agree. Now, this issue of gas, importing gas, needing more and more gas, and of course the reason for that is because we're relying on wind energy so much that when the wind turbines don't blow on days like this, we burn a lot of gas. And there are two tankers from Russia on their way to Kent ports due to dock this weekend. Is there anything we can do to change this debate? Well, Angela Knight, former CEO of Energy UK and former Treasury Economic Secretary, joins me. Angela, thank you uh, for coming back on the programme and being a friend of it. We've discussed this before, but now that we've had these events in Ukraine soaring oil and gas prices, is there any way we can change this government's mind? I honestly think that events have got to change the government's mind. In this instance, what I mean about the government's mind is actually having a much uh, deeper think and proper think about what energy policy should be, because we have been operating on the basis that there's been a large amount of cheap wholesale market gas. It'll just come in, and so there's been no problem. But of course, that's only a times is good policy. We're in times are bad. And when you see that even Germany, who's been absolutely against nuclear power, deciding not to close down its nuclear power stations. And when you see them digging up more coal, it does show that even in that country, who arguably has had for many years the worst possible energy policy, worse in Europe than anybody I can think of, realization has dawned. Now, with us, uh, what we've got to do, in my view, is, yes, make ourselves far more self-sufficient as far as what we uh, use in the way of uh, energy, which means that we have got to look at fracking, we've got to look at filling up our stores, we've got to look at doing more drilling at the North Sea. That will take a bit of time, but right now, what I would do is not shut down anything more. That is, yeah. keep our old coal-fired power stations going and keeping our nuclear power stations going, because one thing I suspect that government is thinking about is this, Nigel, that we have taken electricity from Europe through interconnectors yeah. for some years. The EU is in a worse situation than the UK. I think that those interconnectors are not going to run in our direction, which means we've actually got to be really take that into account. We're coming the into the warmer time of getting good. The logic, Andrew, of what you say is absolutely right. You know, there's a huge risk there, as you say. The EU will look after themselves before they export electricity to us. I get that. But what is it going to take to change Boris Johnson's mind? Well, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm of a firm belief that all, these are things which obviously they're looking at right now because self-evidently you are elected by people. And if people find that the policies that you as a government are pursuing are not working for them, then you're going to change, aren't you? And well, there's, there's, there's two things here, of course, Nigel. One is, are we secure on getting the energy we need? And the second is, and at what price? Actually, I do think we're pretty secure on the energy we need, but the price inevitably is going to increase. And that's something that has to be addressed and getting it uh, getting as much energy from our own resources 
is yeah. at least well, a key important measure in both those two points. Well, as you say, they're elected by the people, and if the people make their feelings felt, they will have to change. Change of tack, perhaps a rather more optimistic story, a happy story. Mm. One of the complaints that Brexiteers have had, and indeed Remainers have had, is that we were supposed to get great benefits in leaving the European Union. That was what the Leave campaign said, in terms of regulation that wasn't appropriate for this country, and very little has happened. The government argue, well, the pandemic has kept them fully busy. But City Minister John Glenn, MP, speaking to the Treasury Select Committee and talking about Solvency 2, which is an EU directive, and indeed about MIFID 2. Now, look, I know that no one at home knows what these things are, but they are EU regulations that were designed for 28 countries imposed upon our insurance industry, um, mm. our equities industry. Um, is John Glenn on the right lines? Totally, totally. I spent 10 years, Nigel, uh, going to Brussels more or less every month, arguing the toss for, first of all, financial services industry in the UK on regulation, and then secondly, for the energy industry. And of course, you, you do come across two very big things. The first is, is they don't structure their industry the same as us by any manner of means. And the second is that when they think about what's international, what's cross-border, it's one European country to another. The UK cross-border is to the world. Now, if I can just pick up on those two financial services things, what, what, they both, what both of them do is they add very significantly the costs to doing business, the costs of insurance that you and I pay. Solvency 2 might sound the sort of thing which you say, what on earth are you talking about? Yep. But the reality is it adds very significantly to the cost of insurance. Why has the UK got the, one of the biggest global insurance, aid, uh, insurance, um, um, insurance industries? And the answer is because we know how to do lots of different things. And what the EU has done with that solvency too is constrained our industry, increased our costs. Review it, and you'll still get a secure industry, but you'll get one that's more dynamic. MIFID two, that's all about trading. People say, well, do I care about trading? Well, actually, you might not, but your pension fund does. You know, you, the, the idea that you can just get what you need to buy, what you need to buy, is, is sort of fundamental to us with shops. Well, for the financial service industry, has to be fundamental to them. So reviewing these two equals a very good thing. There'll still be uh, rules and regulations yeah. in place, but unnecessary rules and unnecessary costs get swept away. Good to John Glenn and good to the government on this. And good for you for explaining that in terms that everybody can understand. It's a great story. <laughs> it's a good piece of news. And thank you very I much. Now you, well, you did very well, I promised you. Thank you. Um, well, I'm really pleased about that. You know, financial services, and you hear that term, because, oh, it's all bankers you know, and all the rest of it. No, financial services isn't just the city of London. Every major town and city in this country has offices that do insurance, look after pension funds. Financial services is the biggest single employer in this country. I believe passionately, as I went into the European Parliament in 1999, and I did from the financial services industry, I believe right back then, it was holding us back, putting up costs, and I argued that consistently for many, many years, and at last, something is being done. Thank goodness for that. What a real what the Farage moment. So you may remember, going back a little bit, that it was decided that OneWeb, 
would be nationalised. OneWeb would get bought out by the British taxpayer, which it was at a cost of about £400 million. It was something Dominic Cummings thought was vital for us. And this was our means of putting satellites up into space so that we can head towards a space broadband network. Now, look, the reward of that would be phenomenal. Any of you watching or listening to this that live in rural areas that have got terrible internet will know, and probably very bad mobile phone signal too, will know exactly what I mean. And we have 36 satellites ready to go as we move towards this. But unfortunately, these satellites are due to be launched this week from a base in Russia. Um, and Roscosmos, the Russian state space agency, is refusing to allow the launch of those satellites unless the British government sells its stake in OneWeb and receives assurances that the business will, of, 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 of those satellites will not be used for military purposes. So, in effect, our 36 satellites are being held hostage by the Russians. There you are. There are consequences to all of these things. My other what the farage, what is it about modelling? What is it about people who produce graphs, uh, who do five o'clock briefings designed to scare the life out of all of us? And when Omicron came along, despite the fact the South Africans told us it wasn't going to be a great problem, no, it was going to be a disaster. In fact, the Prime Minister addressed the nation on a Sunday evening and, and four times used the word Emergency. Well, what were the predictions? We were told by SAGE that up to 10,000 people a day could enter hospital because of Omicron and that deaths could peak at 6,000 a day. In fact, the highest death number, and they're all sad, they're all bad, they're all horrible, but the highest death number was 300 a day. And SAGE have now admitted that they failed to accurately predict the numbers. Yes, they failed to predict the numbers. Um, they got it wrong once again. They get it wrong every time. And my final what the Farage moment is, yeah, I do just find it incredible that Gavin Williamson, who was sacked as Defence Secretary for leaking to the press things that should have been, secre should have been secrets, who then went on to become the Minister for Education, who announced a brand new plan for A-level marking during the pandemic. That was held up to be rubbish. He U-turned shortly afterwards. He was got rid of, double sacked from the cabinet. He is to become Sir Gavin Williamson. You really couldn't make some of this stuff up. A couple more thoughts from you on Emmanuel Macron. Neil says, we have NATO complete with its own HQ command and communication structures, tactics and procedures. We have a specific role and permanent commitments. Our tiny military cannot be fragmented and stretched any more than they already are. Charlie says, under Macron's idea for a European army, who will give the order for that army to go to war? If this has to be unanimous amongst all members, there is fat chance of any action being taken. And finally, Camilla says, all members of the EU should become of mem of members of NATO. Finland and Sweden are particularly vulnerable, but would be protected under its umbrella. Well, there is an argument for that, but of course, if you let Finland in, once again, you're back to the argument of pushing up against Russian borders. But I guess that Putin's aggression means that argument is now somewhat 
redundant. In a moment, joining me for Talking Pints, Will Geddes, security expert. I'm going to ask him about the oligarchs living in the UK. Just how safe are they if they've turned against Vladimir Putin? The bell has rung, the GB News Tavern is open, and I'm joined by security specialist Will Geddes on Talking Pints. Will, welcome to the programme. Cheers, good sir. Thank you for the invite. Good to see you. There was a lot to talk about in terms of security, in terms of the war that's going on in Ukraine, what the role perhaps of mercenaries is going to be in all of that, what happens to Russian oligarchs who speak out against. I had a lot to talk about. But, Will, all the people I've met before working in this field of, you know, whether it's close protection or, or, or doing risk analyses over the world, all of them are ex-army types. And you're not, are you? No, I'm a dirty civvy, as they would call it, <laughs> Nigel. I'm, I'm, I'm within that category of the weird and wonderful, which uh, proved a challenge in, obviously, my, my growth in this industry. Um, because, obviously, when I walked in the door of many of my clients, who are now, many of which are good friends, uh, they would turn around and say, so, Will, you know, which regiment were you in? Or yeah. which police force were you in? Yeah. Or, and, uh, and when you go, neither. They, they, they kind of got a startled gaze in their eyes and went... I don't know which box to put you in. So how do you get into this industry? How do you make a start if you haven't got that background? Well, I, I do mentor quite a few civilians who want to come into the industry, and there are an awful lot of civilians who don't have to necessarily have come from a military background, although depending on which end of the sector you are operating yeah. will depend on, obviously, the skill sets that you can either bring to the game straight away or you can develop, as I have, over the years. So it's, it's an interesting industry. It's made up of... Uh, I would say that there's no one particular background which would necessarily precede someone else. Uh, I think if you have the right mindset, if you're willing to learn, uh, you get on with other people, which I hope I do, uh, then there's every good chance for you to develop. So, you know, there, there are guys out there who are trying to get in. But for me, I came in as a, as a close protection officer, as a yeah. bodyguard yeah. initially. That was how I yeah. started. I'd had a background in martial arts. And I set up a company in the UK after spending some time overseas providing bodyguarding uh, for basically personal protection, but also personal protection training. And worked with a number of big blue chip companies. And then from there, I had a, a very, very, very good mentor, uh, one of the great and the good from B Squadron in 22 SAS, an amazing chap who was my mentor, very close friend, uh, was very harsh and brutal on me, but taught me an awful lot about the industry. And then from there, as the business grew, got to know lots of other people. And I think one of the skills you have to have in this industry is to be a sponge and just literally draw as much information well, actually, as you I can. Th I think in life. Yeah, it's a good point. I think in life. It's why work from home yeah. was so, so objectionable, you know, because particularly young people getting into any business, they learn from older people, they learn from experience, they absorb information. Um, I hope those days are firmly behind us. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, well, I mean, in this country, it's interesting, isn't it? There are a lot more... You know, rock stars, uh, very well-known footballers, uh, whatever it is. Uh, and I, of course, had it myself for, for, for many years and still have to be thoughtful about where I go and what I do. A lot more people now need some form or feel they need some form of protection in this country. It's as if the barriers between us, the normal barriers have been broken down, I think, by social media. Uh, and, you know, the chance of being accosted now is, is higher than it ever was. So that... End of the industry, I guess, is booming. 
Well, it is. And I mean, I think it's right across the board, because even if you're not a celebrity, um, many people are engaging in social media. So as you say, you know, I remember when Twitter first came out, one of the biggest challenges was I remember getting calls from people in the public eye who'd say, well, I have no idea how someone knew I was at this restaurant or I was at this location. Right. And they'd forgotten and didn't know at that time how to control their devices and their privacy and not give out their location unknowingly to obviously those that had a vested interest or were fixated people. And it doesn't have to be a celebrity and stalkers. It could be an aggrieved former partner or someone who is stalking that person because of an acrimonious business deal. So there are so many different ways that uh, we've opened ourselves up. You're absolutely right, Nigel, in terms of our availability or potential access to other people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean clearly, I, you know, I was somebody with a very controversial opinion. So controversial, it got a majority in a referendum, but hey. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it, and yes, and, and you're in a restaurant and someone tweets that you're there. Mm. Uh, and if you're not on the ball, you can have a problem very, very quickly. And that's where you need, you know, have somebody looking after you, checking social media and everything else. Before we go on to the international dimensions of this, which I suspect when we come to Ukraine, there's going to be a lot to talk about. What about the security of our kids? in terms of what they see online, where they go. What can parents do to well, try and protect their children? Well, without, that really is a big issue. Yeah, I mean, without giving a cheap plug, I did write a book about it know, uh, a couple of years I ago. Know, I know, I um, know. I think fundamentally what we've got to understand, and I was talking to one of the schools, I do quite a bit of sort of talks to schools and, uh, and particularly to little ones about, you know, what they have to be aware of in terms of their growing digital footprint and the profile that they're projecting and that, you know, back in our day, Nigel, you know, thankfully we lived in the time of 35mm and Insta Instamatics and, yeah. you know, our childhood and our adolescence wasn't documented in Thank the same way. Thank I, goodness. I know, absolutely. I, I think I'd be locked up today <laughs> if, if that was the case. But uh, I think for kids, they don't realise that, you know, maybe an interview they go to in 10 years' time, um, their employer is going to look at their Facebook history, their Instagram history, their digital profile. And removing this stuff is really difficult, very, very, very hard. And people don't understand that the law actually doesn't work as well as one might imagine. And this right for privacy and removing things from Google, it's not that straightforward. So what I fundamentally say, and as I did to the, this school I was talking to today, is about parents really understanding that they can't use it for virtual nannying. They, they have to engage themselves in that child's digital life as much as they do in their real life. So if the child says, I'm talking to Jemima or Harry or Fred or whatever, um, in the same way as if they said, well, I'm going to go off and play with Harry, Jemima or Fred, they'd say, well, how do you know them? Do you know them from school or anything else? Don't just think because they're online, they don't necessarily pose as much of a threat, if not more of a threat. So it's about a parent talking with their child, having a constant dialogue, understanding what they're enjoying, what they're not enjoying, what frightens them, and understanding also in terms of content, what is seen can never be unseen. So don't venture out and, and look and for that material. And we've had that, you know, there was, I mean, I won't name him, but an England cricketer, you know, plays his first test match, and it turns out years before when he's a teenager, he's written something on social media that, yeah. isn't, that isn't very savoury. But very difficult to tell 13-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, that every picture you take with your friends, it, very, very hard, isn't it? It's, it's, it's almost impossible. I don't say entirely impossible, no. but it's almost impossible. But it's again down to trust. I think the other thing as well is teamwork with the child. And it's, uh, you know, I don't endorse putting spyware on your child's uh, software on their, on their phones or on their iPads. Uh, because if the child has that kind of uh, either spyware or parental controls, they only see that as something to defeat and trying to overcome. So it's about saying to the child, look, 
I trust you with this device. But yeah. the one thing I always have to drum into parents, and they're the worst generally, uh, and as the old saying goes, and this is probably an awful analogy, there's no such thing as a bad dog, only a bad owner. So <laughs> I say to, say, to, say to the parents, look, you're giving your child this device, and until such time as that child can pay for that device mm. and the running of that device, yeah. it's a loner. Yeah. I can see the complaints coming in now. It <laughs> is compared children to dogs. I can see it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, Parental groups in, in no, but that, but that is, it, it is a big area. Will, you've worked across the world. You've worked in some very dangerous places. You've been kidnapped once or twice. Attempts. Attempts. <laughs> <laughs> that I'd admit to. Yeah, no, I spent a good bit of time in Iraq. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty hairy experience. Um, spent almost three years on and off there helping... Uh, some companies, obviously, in redeveloping the country and trying to put in some infrastructure. Spent some time in uh, Afghanistan, on and off for about two years. Uh, some other hairy places around the world, Mexico, uh, the sort of the more dangerous countries within Africa, for example. Uh, so, yeah, I learned an awful lot over my years. I made a few mistakes here and there. Learned by those mistakes. Thankfully, still alive. Still don't have any holes in me. Yeah. So, you know, and is this, few scars, but that's about it. But that's probably uh, the ex-wife. This is looking after commercial companies mostly, is it? It is, yeah. I mean, I've done a, we've done a little bit of government work. I obviously can't talk a great deal about that. Sure. But uh, a lot of it is commercial, and particularly for companies that are operating in, you know, what one could call high-risk or hostile environments, and helping them sort of run those operations. But there's been a lot of response to extortions, to kidnappings, uh, ransomwares of all various yeah. types. Yeah, yeah. of it's, course. That, that's kind of bread and butter business, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm hearing stories that there are quite a lot of not about you. No, no, no. I'm hearing <laughs> stories. No, I've saved those. But no, I'm hearing stories that uh, there are potentially quite a few mercenary teams being hired to go off to the conflict in Ukraine. Mm. What's the story? OK, so there's two sides to this. There's, there's the side for us industry, because, you know, ourselves, my company, a lot of other companies, we all draw from the same pool that is known as the circuit. And a lot of these guys are wanting to go down and join the fight. They've come back from Afghanistan and they've got the fire in the belly and they are warriors and they want to go and obviously do what they do best. Um, some are going down there. I know some are being paid about £1,000 a month to basically contribute and assist down there, and that's through Ukraine assets. There are the others, which are run by private military companies, uh, similar to my own, where individuals are being offered proper salaries to go and operate, obviously, in Ukraine. And this is a kind of a proxy means of dealing with the Russian threat, obviously, in the Ukraine. And it's a very interesting angle at the moment, because... Uh, those PMCs, which are generally offshore, are being financed. And it's literally comparable uh, and in parallel to, say, the, Wagner, the, the Wagner Group or Wagner Group. That we talked about last night. Yeah, which is, yeah. Which is basically a plausible deniability mercenary unit that, uh, that Putin uses. They, yeah. they are disassociated to the Kremlin, but all the dots join <laughs> that it is yeah. evidently a third-party operation. So similar, whereas maybe we can't get involved in a visible sense... To say we're not involved in the fight, we are very much involved in the fight. Even if we haven't got troops on the ground, we're involved in the fight. But this is a means of getting combat troops in there through private military companies that may be allegedly sponsored by countries. Uh, is there a moral question around all of this, around no. the hiring of mercenaries? A lot of people would think there is. I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Well, no, well, I'm just saying that a lot of people would say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a moral question here to answer, and, and that actually, in some ways... 
uh, governments kind of shirk their responsibilities by letting mercenaries do jobs for them, which does happen, doesn't it? Well, politically, it could be a much easier solution because rather than the government have to go into confrontation, which could then precipitate a worse reaction from Putin, and we know at the moment he is acting like a true megalomaniac, and, he, you know, we, if he'd taken Donetsk and Lashank and literally controlled the eastern part of Ukraine, which we all kind of forecasted that he potentially yeah, might, that part. set up its own independence and democratically, albeit probably with some puppet leader uh, that's beholden to the Kremlin, uh, for him to move further into the Ukraine, and his objective, as far as we can tell, is probably to take all the major cities, which will then move it on to an insurgent level, and then we're talking about an insurgency. That is where mercenary forces are actually incredibly beneficial because there hasn't or there isn't a kind of a visible engagement by NATO in a country that is non a NATO partner. Yeah. But you have got combat forces that are well equipped, uh, well experienced to be able to assist and support the Ukrainian people. So I get the point. I get the point. Will Gators, thank you for joining me. Thank you On very much. Sir. Great stuff. Cheers. We are reaching the end of the programme. It's Barrage the Farage. You've sent your questions in. Let me have my go at answering them. Louise asks me, do you think there is any way in which Putin can be held accountable for war crimes that have been committed in his name? Lots of talk about that. We saw this, of course, after the Balkan conflict, where leaders were held to account. Um, do you know what? I think all of that's premature, frankly. I think we've got to think about how we get out of the situation that we're in. And I... Anything I can think, Will, is the only way that Putin stops is if he's brought down from within. And that will be virtually impossible. We've got to, got to remember he was the head of the KGB, or the FSB as it's now known. Yeah. Um, he will have so much protection around him that I don't think we could ever see a coup taking place. Unless those very close to him turned, and that's not going to happen in a hurry. Yeah. You never know, though. Fraser asks, do you think it's appropriate... The Prince Harry's security, when he returns to the UK, be funded by the taxpayer. Now he's deserted the royal family. As I understand it, what Prince Harry wanted was police protection, mm -hmm. and he was happy to put a contribution in towards it. Yeah, that's, what, that's how I understand it. Yeah. Is that, is, is that unreasonable? It is unreasonable. He, he can't do that. I mean, and to be honest, if he has a good private security company, and I might know of one, Nigel, <laughs> not possibly there we are. A pitch, Harry. <laughs> if you're watching Prince Harry, that was a pitch. Prince Harry won't be watching this programme. <laughs> and certainly Meghan won't, I guarantee you that. Another asks, Chinese, Indian, Mexican, Italian, or good old fish and chips? Well, I love fish and chips, if they're good. If fish and chips is good, it's fantastic. It's the best fast food of the lot. But, got to tell you, a bit partial to an Indian. Will, what about you? Uh, you know what, I'm the same as you. If it's a rotten fish and chips, forget it. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that can ruin a very good evening. But if it's a good one? Uh, I'd say I do like a good curry, but again, it's got to be a good curry. <laughs> <laughs> Neil asks, with the world sanctioning Russia, could this be called World War Three? Not yet. Not yet. An incursion into... NATO territory could turn it into something approaching that. Uh, we pray that isn't going to happen. Andrew asks, given the situation in Ukraine, what additional measures would you take if you was prime minister, if I were prime minister? Um, look, I think we have... I, quite interesting. I, thought, I think Ben Wallace is coming out of this incredibly well, talking very logically. I thought that his, his, his thoughts about why we shouldn't implement a no-fly zone were actually very logical, very good. I have less confidence in the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, but there we are, perhaps 
she'll grow on me as foreign secretary. I doubt it. Uh, look, I think providing aid, uh, providing weapons, if they're going to make a real go of this in Kyiv, they're going to need an awful lot of equipment, aren't they? Yeah, and I think one of the biggest challenges they've got right now, uh, now Nigel, is from what I'm hearing from my local assets, is that uh, you know cities are being cut off, main supply routes are being cut off. Uh, they're starving people in those enclaves, which are now getting Russian control around them. Uh, this makes it very difficult for resupply of weapons, munitions, and everything else. So it's well, a challenge. There's still a gap there. There's a 27 kilometer gap to the south of Kiev at the moment. We've got to get some stuff in there as fast as we can. Yeah. That's it. We're done for the evening. I'm back with you on Monday evening.